What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Time for our third installment in our new Argentine cinema marathon, getting to Lucretia Martel and her film La Cienega, available via Criterion Collection. As we said, the third film, the first two in this series were presented exclusively by our sponsor for this series. We hope you have caught up with those films if you are listening, or maybe it's on your to-do list. Those films were Extraordinary Stories. And last week we talked about Castro. Mubi is your home for cult classic and independent films from around the world. Every day, movies experts introduce you to a film they love and you have a whole month to watch it. So there will always be 30 extraordinary films for you to enjoy. Now is the best time to sign up if you haven't already. You can participate in this marathon and you can do it for free. Film Spotting listeners can try Mubi free for a month. Just go to Mubi.com slash Film Spotting. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash Film Spotting. We talked about last week how Castro was a very different film from Extraordinary Stories in scope, in style, and here we're going in a completely different direction with Martel and La Cienega. Yeah, absolutely. Although there are some familiar touchstones, I think, for this one that I saw right away with this opening scene. Let's just dive yeah. right into... So La Cienega translates as The Swamp, and we're introduced to this main family who lives full time or is this a country I think they're visiting they visit? it's like a summer yeah. summer visit a summer rental rural argentina and there's a pool but it's a fetid pool not very clean at all looks terrible leaves floating in it and in fact they often refer to it as filthy yeah. uh, this family the whole place seems like it's kind of falling apart and this family is made of middle-aged parents drunk the majority of the time Two teen sisters, a slightly older brother, maybe in his 20s, and then a tween brother, I would say, younger brother as well. There's something fetid at the heart of this family as well. And I think one of those touchstones for me is Sofia Coppola because what Martel does here is capture the mood, the malaise, the torpor that's overtaken this family and just the sense that they are rotting. Even the young people, maybe in different ways mm -hmm. than the mother and father. Um, so that was very clear to me. But the beginning, this opening scene, which I liked quite a bit, is pure Bunuel. Yes. Where we see the mother and father, they're played by Martin Ajimian and Graciela Borges. And there, they have some friends over by the pool. They're all just kind of laying there, not really talking to each other. I believe she starts clinking mm -hmm. the glass with ice and it like calls them out of their stupor and they right. start shuffling. It's a medium shot. We don't see their heads. Mm -hmm. We see their outstretched hands and their glasses for more wine. And I don't know what variety of wine this is, but it's basically, think horror movie blood red <laughs> yeah. that they drink. Um, a lot of red flashes at the beginning of this. And just this sort of exposure as they shuffle like zombies is very Bunuelian, this exposure yes. of bourgeois, again, torpor. And class issues come more into play. Uh, eventually, there's a maid character as well. And I thought of Diary of a Chambermaid. So some very wry class observations mm -hmm. going on here. Just saw this movie today, squeezed it in under the recording deadline. So I'm still wrapping my head around it. I think I liked it quite a bit. Okay. But it's an odd bird. Yeah, it is. And... I think you're taking all my notes there with all those references, Josh. You're dead on. And I will point out that we're taping this very late 
and we are pretty worn out at this point, but you managed to get in torpor and fetid. And I'm I'm impressed. I'm legitimately that's how impressed. You feel right now? Or? Yes, actually, it does describe <laughs> for the record. My we just state. got done talking about every film that came out in 1982. Yeah, so. you're hearing potentially this show before the top five films of '82 and Blade Runner recorded after. Yes, so that's why we're a little worn out. We will do our best here. Maybe we are in the proper state of mind to be like one of these family members yeah. who are lost in this kind of malaise, and the kids, the younger generation, who who are as well, but aren't aware of it mm. yet. Anyway, and absolutely, there's more realism to this film than the other two films we've seen in this marathon so far. There's more realism than surrealism, which we think of with Boonwell, but that opening scene, 100% Boonwellian, the satire of this bourgeois culture. They are clinging to any last gasp of their influence and affluence, if they ever really had it to begin with. I said it was maybe a summer rental. I think the implication is they probably own it, but they clearly aren't maintaining it. Mm-hmm. If they have the money to do it, maybe they just don't have the energy to do it. But for whatever reason, they're just letting it waste away kind of like their lives. And that opening is grotesque in so many ways. And I think we see it in the sense of decadence of the adults with that disgusting pool, as you said. But more than that, the dyed hair, the leathery skin, the the swimsuits that they probably shouldn't be wearing that are, you know, not really appropriate for their age and all those bottles and glasses on the table. I was going to say that they're like zombies. Yeah. When that, when that goes off, they're like zombies. They're shot almost like this is a Romero movie moving towards Definitely. that call solely. But then it also, as they're dragging their chairs, it hit me as I was thinking about some of the metaphors of this film. More than zombies, they might actually be like grazing cattle. Hmm. And we do see a cattle as a recurring character in this film. We'll talk about that a little bit more. For better or for worse, better because... I absolutely appreciate the technique of this film, and I think anybody watching it, it'd be hard not to. Worse, because it would be hard to describe this film, the experience of watching it as enjoyable. The movie succeeds in keeping you, keeping me anyway, certainly, in a near-constant state of dread over very mundane kind of fears. There's, There's also fears that aren't mundane at all, and we'll talk about that, but as an at times overprotective parent... Even when, honestly, Josh, pretty early in the film, when we meet the other family who we think they're related, the main character, the woman who gets injured in the early scene, the mother, describes this mother as almost like a cousin. So are they really related or not? Not not totally clear. But she has a son named Luciano. Luci, they call him. And they have a dead rabbit just laying on their counter. They're probably going to eat it. Hey. I've eaten rabbit. I like rabbit, but there's something about it with that dead animal just there on the counter with all these kids running around. Then he just hops up on the counter. And honestly, right then, I was already, I think because of that opening and the fact that that opening does end with an accident where she gets badly hurt, you just get the sense right away that, well, where is this going? Mm -hmm. What's going to happen to this kid? Is he going to fall off this counter? I mean, I was already thinking that and as I said, early in the film, and nothing does happen, but you're always expecting something terrible to happen. That water, what the hell is underneath it? You're constantly aware of it. Could it all be passing on some kind of disease to them? Forget maybe falling in it and actually drowning in it or whatever would happen to you if you fell in it, but just being around it, and yet they're constantly around it, the kids especially, that cow that we do see stuck in the mud out in the forest waiting to be shot 
I think it is a metaphor for some of these lives Absolutely. that we see on screen. And we have these kids, Josh, just shooting guns, running around, running guns, around the forest, yeah. shooting guns, and not BB guns like I did as an idiot kid, but guns that could actually kill someone. Sure. And at one point, Lucci gets right in the middle, and and Martel cuts away. And for a second, you have to think, well, maybe maybe they did actually shoot him. You don't know for sure. But again, always expecting the worst. How about the scene where they go swimming, and all the boys are fishing with machetes? Yeah. Just teenage kids running around with like eight machetes. They're all about a foot away from each other. And that damn ladder, we might get to this Later, in fact, I know we will. We'll spoil it. We'll give you a heads yeah. up when we do it. But I think we have to because it's it's one of my real criticisms of the film, actually. But we have that ladder where the mother of of Lucci early in the film, I think she sets it up because she's watering the plants or something. Mm-hmm. What is it that she moves this she's ladder and she, something she's on the hanging wall. something yeah. up and she has enough foresight as a parent to recognize that she has young kids running around and there's a big wall and she probably shouldn't put a big ladder out there where kids can just climb up it and maybe fall down. But all she does is put a table in its way. And so you have, again, that sense of dread that permeates every frame of this film, just waiting for something terrible to go wrong. Okay. It's not, we will get to the ending, but up until that point, I would argue it's not as manipulative. Your description is right on, Mm -hmm. but it I think when you hear all that in a row, it feels more manipulative than I experienced the movie to be until the ending. So there is that sense of dread. I think it's well handled and articulated and paced throughout the movie so that you – I didn't feel that I was being manipulated by it. Mm -hmm. Um, Here's here's where the Coppola comparison comes in for me though and it has to do with Luciano played by Sebastian Montaigne, a very young actor. I don't know. The kid's maybe first grade, something like that, right? Uh, you sense this kid's fear so palpably. So like Coppola, we That's are put point. very much in the interior lives of these characters. And notably, the two teenage daughters, I think we feel that very much. Um, but even in this little boy as well, he's heard this story about an African rat. The older kids have told him yeah. um, this mythical story about a terrifying creature. He's hearing this. He's thinking about this. As he's hearing the neighbor's dog barking monstrously, as his older sister with a friend comes by screaming at him, telling him to play dead, and he just does it out of instinct. Mm -hmm. He obeys, all while his mother's a foot away, oblivious to all of it happening. But we know the terror that he's going. So, So we do get a lot of the interior angst that these characters, the kids in particular, are feeling. And I did appreciate that about it. Um, but man, this, this dread, so many things, every scene could almost turn and go terribly. Yes. And one element of this has to do with the sexual dynamics among this family, totally. right? When this older 20 something brother comes, he's, he flirts with one sister, sleeping in with the mother, sleeps directly with the flirting mother. with the sister. Uh, he, yeah. And here's, you know what? Not a family therapist, but I'd suggest two things for these people. Uh, a bit more clothes, and some locks on the bedroom doors. And the <laughs> right. bathroom, too. Right. The, apparently, they all share one bathroom. And, and you know, when one person is showering, the other is in there. And the movie pushes all of this just yes. to the point of uncomfortability and then yes. backs away a little you bit. You can see innocence in it. You can also choose to that's not see innocence in exactly. it. Exactly. Right. And, and I think that's well calibrated, too. So I think Martel has a very, very impressive understanding of where to push things, where to pull back. To ultimately capture the uncertainty of maybe that particular age for the two sisters, 
particularly. Mm-hmm. Um, now, it does also tie into this larger sense of dread that plays throughout the film. Uh, we'll get to that maybe at the very end. I want to talk a little bit about the class issues at yeah. play because I think that's one of the real strengths, too, is sure. there is this – your impression is – this servant class made up of mostly indigenous people and the mother refers to them as savages at one point, you know, as they're in the room, um, there's a teen or maybe older teen maid played by Isabel played by Andrea Lopez. And one of the teen daughters, Momi played by Sophia Bertolotto has a crush on her. Yes. And here's again, where we get that interior life, her yearning for this maid is so palpable. Uh, and, and I think that's a strength of the film too, especially as it spirals out into when these teens come together at the festival and you have the upper class mixing with the lower class. Mm-hmm. There's some interesting dynamics there, there that is also Boonwellian in a lot of ways. Yeah, there's a lot of commentary, not only in terms of this crumbling bourgeois family and really every aspect of it, but also the way marriage is portrayed. If you think of the woman, Mecha, who runs the one who's injured early on, but runs her house really with an iron fist. Yeah, the mother. Yeah, the mother. She disregards a lot of people, including those Indian maids. And her husband just kind of couldn't care less about anything. And he doesn't seem to know what's going on. No. And so he's really passive. And then you've got the other husband who the other house with the younger kids, including Luciano, where he's also in a way really passive, but actually ends up being aggressive. Yeah, he's passive he aggressive. runs the whole house. He, he, he does everything to the point where his wife actually can't ever do any of the things mm-hmm. that she says she wants to do or is going to do. And you're absolutely right. I think that the class aspect has to be something that you discuss in conjunction with this film where all they have really maybe is this crumbling estate and they have these people that they think they have license to criticize mm-hmm. and treat as second class. Yeah. And if that's, that's, what, what, that's it what it takes, they're there for, yeah, not it, to exactly. serve them. Yeah, to make them feel better about themselves yes. by being able to criticize them and being able to chastise them and get them to do everything they want them to do, including getting an ice cube for them. Yeah. So that that's all there. I want to talk about the other kind of dread in this film, though, and you touched on some of these things already. Not only is there... All the mundane, and maybe that's not the best word because these aren't aspects of most people's lives probably, but in this environment, the machetes and the shotguns, those seem like everyday aspects of life in this culture to these people. They are certainly more tangible, right? The things that aren't tangible are even scarier here in some ways. There's nothing supernatural going on really in this film, and yet there is almost a horror film quality to Mm -hmm. it because you feel this constant oppression or at least this constant pressure of these unseen intangible forces. I think that that brother-sister dynamic between Jose and Veronica, that sexual tension that may be there, is one of those unseen forces. The feelings of that one daughter for Isabel, that African rat dog. And maybe there's, there's nothing wrong, I'm suggesting, in the feeling she has for Isabel, but they're they're not something that anyone else seems to recognize mm-hmm. or understand. They're not well, immediately the mother is explainable dismissive of it. Absolutely, well, she's dismissive of Isabel. That's that's yeah. for sure, and dismissive of her. She says she's yeah, she's obsessed with that maid at one point. Yeah, so, she yeah. she's dismissive of their closeness, yes. but I don't think she really has any sense of what it 
probably really is. She she seems mostly oblivious to that. But the African rat dog, that story that's told, we never we never see one. We never see the dog that's on the other side of the wall. But it's this this unseen oral presence that we're constantly aware of. And so Martel makes great use of sound here mm-hmm. in this film to have these forces, whether it's thunder way off in the distance or it's that dog or whatever, the, the gunshots in, in the forest. We're, we're constantly hearing sounds that, that ramp up that sense of dread. And I'll go on with some of those other unnatural, if you will, or those not present forces. The tooth growing in Lucci's mouth. Yeah. What is that? They go to the doctor. It is is creepy. He seems to have a tooth growing out of the the, the top of his mouth. And they can't really explain it. But the fact that they can't makes it inherently a little bit scary. The Virgin Mary subplot here in this film. One person claims to have had the vision on the water tower or whatever. No one else can see it, but it's such a powerful force. It, It runs their lives. And it does factor in later in the story. So everyone reveres the woman who claims she saw it. There's no proof of it. But the the thought of it is enough for them to have some genuflection for. And so that that is interesting. I even thought about, Josh, the way they talk about going to Bolivia in yeah. this movie. At this point where so much dread has been built up, when you have the two mothers talking about going to Bolivia to get cheaper school supplies, and they bring up things like, well, we may not have the right identification, and, and, and the husband's saying it's probably dangerous. Yeah. yeah, I'm immediately thinking, what could possibly happen to them what is Bolivia going to be like? Again, this we're aware of Bolivia, but it's an unseen, yeah. ominous presence in this film. And the, the, the film is just full of these things sort of outside the frame or in the imagination of the characters. We never have a clear sense of what could happen to characters if they were in these situations or they confronted some of these, these oppressive forces. But as a viewer, you always feel like it, it can't be good. Well, you know who's aware of it and comments on it is the other husband of the family who lives in town, Rafael, played by Danielle Valenzuela. He comments a number of times how I don't like you going there. And right. then on one trip, she leaves a few of the kids overnight. Yeah. And he's he knows, doesn't name explicitly why mm-hmm. or what his concerns are, but that is a bad Yes. place. And it carries both the practical concerns. It it's a bad place them, because but... the, the pool is fetid, but also because there are kids running around in the woods with shotguns. But it's also a bad place in a way you can't exactly name, mm-hmm. but you can feel in the yes. way that you're talking about. So, okay. So the ending, which should we Let's get spoil there. at this yeah. point? Okay. So Luciano, who you're right, this little kid who's constantly been in danger, he's got the tooth problem, he gets a cut on his leg very early on when he jumps on the counter, like you described, and we constantly fear for him. Climbs up this ladder in the last 10 minutes, falls, and dies. Yeah, and and I do want to say there's something beautifully awful and tragic about even the way that table that I mentioned the mom puts there in front of the ladder, the kid just really gracefully goes right underneath, underneath the table it, yeah. and climbs up the ladder. Yeah, it's, it's not even there. No. So for me, uh, and I think we're on the same page about this, a lot of times films that have been mundane, and I yes. don't mean boring, but I, but, <laughs> I know. you know, I know where you're mostly going. about familiar events, even though it's had this threat undercurrent, nothing really happens in this no. movie, right? No. Nothing major happens. Yep. 
there sometimes is a need to yes. suddenly make something big happen. And I think that's the case here. And I think it undermines a lot of what we were feeling before. It deflates that tension for me because suddenly I'm in a movie. Yeah. And and I wasn't before. I was somewhere more uh, disturbing and mysterious. Yeah. Even though cinematic, certainly in its use of the camera and oh, the yeah, sound, all the sure. things we're talking about, at some point you feel like you're you're wallowing in this with this family as opposed to being a detached viewer. And this is the point where you become aware that you're You're watching a a story. Yeah, Yeah. We couldn't agree more on this. This movie actually commits one of my cardinal cinematic sins. And it's a little bit of what you're saying, and then it's also just exactly what plays out. But it's as if Martell perhaps doesn't completely trust us as viewers, doesn't trust the power of her images and the characters maybe, where she feels compelled to offer some kind of catharsis, a release even if it comes in the form of a punishment. I agree with you. It's about nothing happening, really. And then all of a sudden, if we're going to go out of this film, well, what were we all here for? Mm. We had to we had to see something. We had to see some kind of closure. We had to get some kind of closure. And that means in this case, the most innocent character in the film, this little sweet boy dying. It's as if he had to be sacrificed for our sins or Martel's sins. A boy has to die so the movie can have some kind of resolution. And that bothers me. And it bothers me as well because it's it's the only one you can see coming, right? Because we talk about the latter from so. early on. In a way, you can see it coming, but you also think maybe it won't because Martell is constantly upending our expectations. As we've said, you expect something terrible to happen every two minutes, and it never does. So you think maybe she's going to let this one slide as well. She put that ladder there precisely to then not have it cause a tragic accident. But while I get, I think, the ultimate point, there is absolutely an absurdity in that character that, as I said, the most innocent character in the film being sacrificed. It's as if it it adds to the sense of just kind of meaninglessness Mm -hmm. of this entire existence, right? That these characters experience that only bothers me even more. And part of it, Josh, I'll just admit is maybe a thing as a parent, maybe it's the same for you. Maybe there are other people who aren't parents that feel the same way as me, where you just you watch a kid die on screen and you don't enjoy it. You you don't react well to it. Maybe that's part of what I'm I'm feeling is just that that type of attachment to the kid as a parent. But that doesn't mean it's really any less manipulative. Right. And what happens is, especially in the context of this film, it's no longer about the danger or the threat or the concern. It yeah. suddenly becomes about the tragic reality and to place it at this position of the narrative it sort of ignores that tragic reality Mm -hmm. by suddenly ending and it uses it here's where manipulation i think comes in it uses it as this fulcrum or this turning point to comment on because there's some more there's a few more scenes afterwards uh to comment in a different way a more not important but um, a more potent, seemingly potent way on everything that had come before. But as I said, for me, it, it'll undercut it and then deflate it. I would yeah. rather have been left in the dangerous malaise. Mm-hmm. I think that would have been uh, somehow, strangely, a more affecting yes. experience for me rather than have this tragedy shoved at me. Yeah. On that we agree. And overall, it sounds like we agree on the film, which we do recommend is worth seeing if you are, I suppose, up for (laughs) a dreadful experience. Maybe we're not selling it very well, but as a filmmaker, as a new voice in Argentine cinema, I now completely understand why so many people went 
bonkers for Lucretia Martel. And I'm really glad that we're watching another film from her. I know that there are people that do prefer this one. I think there are some out there I saw maybe on Letterboxd who do prefer La Cienega to the headless woman, but I know there are others who definitely think that film was kind of the the launching pad, the experimental ground for then a film where she she put it all together. I'm hoping that's the case. Yeah, I can't wait to see the next one. I think absolutely a firm cinematic vision mm-hmm. we've got on our hands here. So next one should be good. And if you do want to follow along or revisit any of our past discussions from this marathon, go to filmspotting.net slash marathons. You can click on the links there to listen. You can click on the links to see where you can watch these films and play along. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.